It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. I'm a big fan of the number 29, and so if you linger around Windsor, you even see the number 29. Uh, and uh, even our the building, two buildings down, is called Studio 29. So then there's a Coffee 29 uh, down the road. And, uh, but there's reasons for that. Uh, and it all stems back to Job chapter 29, uh, where uh, you're seeing a picture of godly manhood maybe unlike any other spot in the Bible. You see an enunciation, and it's speaking of a character named Job, but you have to admit when you look at it uh, from a 50,000-foot vantage point that we're seeing Jesus Christ here. We're seeing a picture of something profound, and so that's always stirred me. And so it's a number of strength, but not just the strength of manhood, but also what a man does with his strength that he's willing to spend it on behalf of the weak. And that's part of what 29 uh, means, is you know, it's, it's the concept of the brave-hearted man. And the brave-hearted man who has this strength, who has this substance, which Job was, is going to spend it on the orphan, the widow, the dying, the lame, and he's going to break the jaws of the evildoer and remove the prey from their teeth. It's like, oh, that's a great description. And so whatever that is, that is sort of wrapped up in 29. Now, I didn't pick this particular message to match that theme, but, you know, I might try and weave it in just because it's a 29, right? And, uh, and I did, I, I'm trying to do something rather challenging. And it is part of the humor of the World War I series. And this is a real thing in World War I, and this is what it's called. But to pronounce it in my very title is a great challenge. So I, I set myself up a challenge now. I need to like climb over it. So <clears throat> let's see if I can do this. Ouvois sacré. So that doesn't look like ouvois to, to me, right? That looks like voy. And so this is a tough one for me, but ouvois sacré. See, part of French, in my opinion, is how you say it. It's how you, you know, wrinkle your nose and you, <laughs> you curl your, your mustache, you know, as you say it, you know, maybe stroke your beard. Uh, that's, that's all part of how you speak French. So, uh, but this is, I'll give you the, see, I even put a pronunciation guide up there for you. You know, those of you that are a little behind in your French from where Eric's at, ouvois sacré. That's now how I heard it. Like, I listened to it a whole bunch of times, like, what did he say? How does that work? And where are we getting the ou sound in there? I'm not seeing it uh, in the word. But this is defined as the sacred road or the holy highway. So this is a very real part of World War I that is very intriguing to me. And it's more in the, uh, the side of World War I that most of us would just glaze over and miss. So I am you know, taking us off the beaten track and I'm going to show you a sacred road. And it's, it's of immense uh, value in my soul just pondering this and it's so intriguing, even the fact that it's named that. Now it wasn't named that, when it was being used. It's named that in hindsight. This is the road of supply. This is the supply line to Verdun. So we, in our last message, we talked about the Battle of Verdun. And the Battle of Verdun is the longest battle, I think still in world history, and uh, estimated over a million casualties in this one battle. Okay, this is just one battle in a huge four-year war. 
And so it is a massive devastation, but that's what it was intended for. The Germans chose Verdun because it was the national treasure. It was the sacred territory of France. And Erich von Falkenhayn, the general of the German operations, military operations, his goal was to pick a place that he knew the French would spend every man that they had to preserve it. So he actually didn't want to win the battle. Have you ever heard of a general going into a battle not intending to win it? But to drag it out and to turn it into a meat grinder to kill as many French as he could. That's an interesting approach to war. And that's how dark World War I is becoming. Because no longer is it just like, let's break through, let's capture Paris, and then they'll send up the white flag and surrender. No, no one's going to surrender in this one. We've got ourselves a stalemate. We need to bleed them white, is the term that Falkenhayn is going to be famous for saying. And so in this battle, there is going to be every supply line. The first thing you want to do in a situation in war is break down supply lines, uh, whether that's communication lines or whether that's uh, material uh, supply lines. For instance, how are you going to get food to your soldiers? Well, that's a supply line. And so when you remember the old fashioned siege where you'd lay siege to like a castle and you cut off supply lines and they can't get any food or men in there and you starve them out and pretty soon the white flag comes up and you win the war. And that's the similar thing in this is where they want to cut. There was a lot of railroad work back then. Remember, automobiles are a rather new thing. And so there's limited automobiles that exist at this time. And so they want to get rid of all of that. They want to break down all of the access points into this location, and they do. Except for there's one country road that you really can't see because of the hilly terrain, and that is going to be known as the, see if I can say it again, the sacred road. So the strange science of military logistics. Now I'm taking this from an earlier episode when we're talking about the Germans marshalling their uh, mighty force into uh, Belgium. And so they're going to move like two million men into motion. And what does that look like? Well, there's a whole side of uh, military science that most of us never think about, and it's called logistics. And it's basically how you don't just move the men. That's not just the only thing is how you move men, which is a, a science in and of itself. How do you get two million men from here to there? I mean, that's extraordinary in and of itself. But those two million men need to eat. Those two million men don't just need to carry with them their weapon. They need ammunition that they can't carry on them, which means the ammunition needs to come. They need you know, all sorts of supplies that need to come. If they're, if they're sending off artillery shells, they need artillery shells. And you can't carry that along with you. Some of these things are 300 pounds. So you need to somehow bring it along with you. And this is all part of logistics. It's all based on timing. It's all based on a science that is way beyond most of us in this room. So I'm just going to read the very beginnings of the German movement into this military operation. This is from Barbara Tuckman in the book, The Guns of August. Once the mobilization button was pushed, the whole vast machinery for calling up, equipping, and transporting two million men began turning automatically. Reservists went to their designated depots, were issued uniforms, equipment, and arms, formed into companies and companies into battalions, were joined by cavalry, cyclists, artillery, medical units, cook wagons, blacksmith's wagons, even postal wagons, moved according to prepared railway timetables to concentration points near the frontier, 
where they would be formed into divisions, divisions into corps and corps into armies ready to advance and fight. One army alone, this is one army out of many, 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 out of the total of 40 in the German forces required 170 railway cars for officers. So this is just for the officers, they need 170 railway cars. 965 railway cars for infantry, 2,960 for cavalry, 1,915 for artillery and supply wagons, 6,010 in all. Now, that's just, uh, you know, train cars. I mean, that's just incredible. Grouped in 140 trains and an equal number again for their supplies. That means 280 trains, which are full of, what, 12,020 train cars. And that's just one of 40 armies. That is remarkable. Imagine trying to be in charge of putting that together. From the moment the order was given, everything was to move at fixed times according to a schedule precise down to the number of train axles that would pass over a given bridge within a given time. It's remarkable. So I'm going to focus very specifically on something that's going to become an issue in World War I that was not an issue before. This thing called oil, which we consider a very normal part of the modern world. Now, we don't usually call it oil. We're going to call it fuel, gas, because we're converting this oil into different things. But oil, in a general sense, was the term back then. There was this discovery of oil, but it, you know they had a glut of it at the start of World War I, and no one was that interested in it because it was used you know, to be converted into kerosene to light lamps. And so you could only use so much of it. You know, so it had value, but it was limited. But then suddenly someone's going to realize that you can use that to power an automobile, to power a plane, to power a ship instead of coal. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And everyone at the same time gets the same idea. You can just sort of see it. Boop, that light bulb above their head. It's like oil. We must have oil. Everyone begins to go for oil, which is why the Middle East is going to become a big deal in World War I. It's the Everyone's trying to come up with a justification of how they can grab oil out of the Middle East because some countries don't have any oil. And it's just in different locations. In Russia, suddenly they realize they have oil. And so you're going to see the strategies of how these different nations, like Great Britain, who don't just have an oil supply on their little island, need to suddenly start staking claim to territory because without oil, they can't live. They couldn't make this work. So what are they going to do? Well, that's not a bad way of describing the Christian life. In other words, you need something as well, and without it, you can't win this war. It's just sort of a nice starter package thought for you. The necessity of oil in, the, in modern war. So this is a comment. Now, remember, I had 93 episodes on World War II, so I have a lot of World War II illustrations that parallel with this, so I'm going to draw from one here. This is a quote uh, of Ma from Matthew Gaskell about World War I and World War II. Four years of the First World War and five years of the Second had taught all sides the absolute necessity of a large and continuous oil supply. If you don't have the oil supply and it's not large and continuous, you're going to lose this war, which is an interesting statement that just one thing like oil and the loss of it can actually cause you to lose a war. So I have a, another quote here that I think you guys will enjoy. It's from a guy, you know, he's a good guy. His name is Eric Ludy. 51 years of spiritual war have taught me the absolute necessity of a large and continuous oil supply. It's interesting because I would say the same thing in my life is that 
we as believers need a supply to be able to win this war and it needs to be large and continuous and ironically the bible itself calls it oil and isn't there a song that's like uh you know oil in my lamp keep it burning you know something like that right and there is something about a continuous fire before that presence of God in the temple that is supposed to be fed a continuous amount of oil. It's just an interesting thought that that's how the Christian life is supposed to work. So I call this the blip, uh, the healthy reminder of the constant need for oil. I bring this up every now and then, and it's a phenomenon in my life that I have deeply appreciated. It's like a gift from God, a reminder from God on this exact theme. So this theme is very, very significant for me, and God has gone out of his way to, in a sense, press the point or to remind me of it in the past. And so I can think of, I mean, just two off the top of my head of these moments in my life where I'm going to call it a blip. So I'm in uh, Boston Logan Airport. I don't remember if that's the name of it. And I'm, I'm off the plane. I have my little rolling suitcase, and I'm making my way. I'm with Leslie. But I'm, uh, you know, we're walking through crowds, and the situation has nothing to do with anything spiritual that I can think of. You know, it's like why God chose this moment, I have no idea. But as I'm walking through the airport, I suddenly have this very clear sense of loss, that I'm missing something, that I've always had, and suddenly it just went off. Have you ever had it where you're sleeping with white noise and the white noise goes off maybe because of like a power outage or maybe your phone was the one doing it and it went out of battery? And suddenly it's just, it changes. That's the way it felt. It's like something just changed. What was it? And I felt very vulnerable. I felt very human. I felt very susceptible, like I was temptable at a different level than I had ever been before, that I could remember. And as I was wheeling along, I'm like, Lord Jesus, what in the world's going on? Why do I feel so fragile right now? And here's my best description of it, is I feel like God in a sense, turned off a pipeline for me real quick that I take for granted, that I have a constant and continuous flow of grace into my life, of oil into my life, and suddenly it's like, it's like, whoa, what's going on? Why do I feel so human? And it's interesting because I know I'm human, right? But I'm human with an oil supply. And as a result, I'm able to think and live differently than everyone around me because of that oil supply. It gives me strength, it gives me clarity, it gives me a sense of protectiveness that I don't realize sometimes that I even have until it turns off, the white noise goes off. It's like, whoa, I'm missing something. And then God goes and turns it back on like, there we go. Okay, thank you, Lord. Boy, I don't want to live without that. And in a strange sense, I feel like God has allowed this a couple times in my life I can think of another time where I was on a radio interview and I'm, I'm walking back and forth in front of a window. And in that moment, I felt like it turned off. It's like, whoa, what? And it was strange because it's like, I feel like the only thing I have to draw on is my own intellect now. I'm trying to represent Jesus. I'm trying to speak on behalf of Christ. I don't have what I need. And it was like a very, very clear sense of the white noise turning off, of the flow just suddenly dissipating, dissipating, and I am like on my own. I don't want to be on my own. I can't do this on my own. And then uh, he turns it back on. It's like, there we go. 
There we go. And so I don't know if that translates into your world at all. However, I'm going to say that that blip has been a tremendous gift to me. That God has reminded me at different times that, Eric, you have something supernatural, never take it for granted. I have given you a large and continuous supply of oil, but I want you to continually remember that this is the reason why you're able to walk this out. That it's not just because you are something special, it's because I have given you something special. And so to cherish that is very significant. The sacred supply line. How do you supply the forces at the front? Now, most of us don't think about supply lines. Maybe over the past couple of years, we've started to think about supply lines. Remember, have you heard the term supply chain? When you try and like, buy something from the store, and they're like, yeah, we don't have that. It's the supply chain. It used to be that they would just simply say, it's COVID-19. You know, that's the reason you don't have it. And then we're like, oh boy, COVID-19. We you know, curse it. Uh, however, now it's like called the supply line, which is a direct derivative of COVID-19. But that, you know, this isn't working. Now it's the war over in Ukraine, you know, that is, you know, computer chips aren't getting here, which is why, you know, this car can't be built anymore. And so as a result, no matter which way you turn, you're missing something or yeah, that's a three month delay and oh, and it's a supply chain issue, which ironically is the one thing you cannot have happen in war. If there is one thing that you don't want to wait three months for, it's ammunition. It's like, yeah, we're out of ammunition. When's that going to come in? Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see if we can get it to you in three months. Meanwhile, you're sitting on the front with your machine gun with no bullets. You know, that doesn't work very well. And ironically, that's going to happen to many people in World War I. The Russians have massive supply issues. They have an incredible manufacturing potential, but they're not going to be ready for World War I. So when it starts, they have tons of men to draw from, I mean Russia, right? But they're going to be coming sometimes one gun for every three men. And then, you know, that one gun, you know, might have like a few bullets each day. Could you imagine? It's just like, hey, give me the gun. Well, you can have the gun. It doesn't have any bullets. It's like we were given three bullets for this one gun today. I mean, that doesn't make a very effective military campaign. You have all the men in the world, but no machinery to work with. And this is a supply chain issue. The Germans are going to actually be breaking through, through Belgium and coming down, sweeping down to take Paris. It looks like they're going to win. However, they're having supply issues and they cannot keep the men fed. They cannot keep the men strong and they can't replace those men with fresh troops because the men are moving ahead of any fresh troops that could get to them. And so as a result, at the very front of the German arm is weakness and they're starting to fall to pieces. And this is a lesson for all of us in regards to spiritual battle. That ironically, just like in World War I or any modern battle that has followed, the supply chain, the supply line is everything. And if you have a healthy supply line, you can win. But if you lose, if that's cut off, and that's why so many of the battles are built on trying to cut off the supply line. If you can keep your supply line, you win. If, you, if it's lost, you lose. So just look at this list. You need to get fresh troops to the front, okay? And believe me, those, those troops are going to greatly appreciate the fact that there's a supply line of fresh troops. You need more weapons. Weapons either go bad, 
they break. I mean, it happens. I mean, if you think about what happens to your little toy weapons, you know, they break, right? Well, it can happen to real weapons too. They need more ammunition, constant flow of ammunition. They need food. I, I, I remember doing a study on how much food these men eat. And it is like so astounding. It's like you're bringing uh, one of those you know, cattle yards uh, that you, know, you, you drive by in the Midwest and you're like, whoo, you smell that? Yeah, one of those for like one day is the way it feels. It's like, yeah, take one of the, where do you get all this food from? That's what goes through my mind. It's like, how do they feed millions of men? And these millions of men are like not that easy to reach with the food. And so this is, but if they don't have food, you can just imagine how good of a soldier they're going to be. And it's not like you can feed them once every three days. It's like, all right, you know, throw, you know, throw a steak up and it lands in the trench and it's like, there, that should do it for them. This is like a challenge, a logistical challenge of epic proportions. Medicine, medical care. It just, just imagine that you're at the front and you you know, have, let's, your finger is blown off. I was going to say something bigger was blown off, but okay, your finger is blown off. You have a medical need, okay? If that happened to you right now, I have a hunch you wouldn't just sit there the rest of the day and hold it, okay? You would be needing some medical attention, right? To stop the bleeding, to sort of bandage this thing up, to try and rescue your hand from further uh, damage. And yet, if you're at the front, you need to have medical care be able to get to you, and sometimes you need to get out of there. But if there's no road out, then you can't even get out. And so if you have a serious injury, which is uh, what battle is, you have to be able to get somewhere away from this to get healthy. And so you can understand this is all part of a supply line. And look at the bottom one, oil. I just happen to emphasize it for you because it sort of sounds spiritual. So listen to this in Exodus 27. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. It's interesting because this is an incredible picture of the supply line that you're going to see in World War I and World War II, that they're gonna to have to get oil to the front constantly because almost all the equipment, I mean, come World War II, everything is run by fuel, by gasoline, by petrol, as they would say. Whereas in World War I, they're beginning to create these machines. Like when the tank is gonna come out soon in World War I, what do you think it runs on? It's not on coal. It's not battery powered, right? It's fuel powered. And so as a result, this is going to become critical because that piece of machinery is useless if you can't keep supplying a continuous supply of oil to it. Preparing for D-Day. So we're going to skip forward into one of my favorite parts of history. Well, it's a pretty dark part of history, right? But it's, it's exciting to my soul. And that is D-Day, uh, June 6, 1944. And so to prepare for this incredible invasion of the beaches of Normandy, so by the way, this is World War II. We are teaching on World War I, even though now you're suddenly wondering, what war are we talking about? I'm just going to talk about the supply line of oil 
over across the channel, because remember, this is Great Britain attacking across the English Channel, the French coast, which was you know, operated by Germany at the time, and it's called Fortress Europe. No one could get across that channel into Europe. Germany owned it. And so they've plotted and planned for multiple years to make this invasion across the English Channel. So they have something known as Operation Pluto. Doesn't that sound fun? You know, it's like the kid's side of you is awakened just by the Operation Pluto. And so Pluto stands for pipelines under the ocean or pipeline underwater transport of oil. There seems to be a debate over uh, which an acronym, uh, acronym uh, is used there. So this is what they did. They put these on these tugboats and this is like pipeline. And then they're gonna roll out pipeline uh, as it goes across and they're gonna create this like instantaneous pipe uh, system going across the English Channel, which is many miles. And so what you're gonna see is Operation Pluto, it feels good to have a little Pluto up on the screen, don't you think? Uh, but it's going to go, one's going to go down to, and I don't know how to say it, Cherbourg, and then Calais and Boulogne up, up top. And so 280 miles of pipe in four lines, and that's 500 miles of pipe in 17 lines. And you're going to see the piping system all throughout Great Britain and then all throughout the war of how they're going to feed that to the military movements. And so this is, I mean, what, a, what an invention this is. This is extraordinary. And it excites me, too, because when I think of moving forward with Christ, it's like to know that Christ is caring for the logistics in my life is actually very encouraging because I get stressed when I think of the logistics for World War I and World War II. It's like, because I don't know if that's my strength. It's not that I'm bad with logistics, but I don't know that I, these are like the guys that love to sharpen their pencils and stare at pieces of paper and stare at numbers. They, like today they would be like guys who love spreadsheets, right? And they'd be like moving numbers around and putting new numbers in. And every detail, every number matters uh, to them. Second Peter 1, 2 through 4. Now this is an understanding of the supply line that we have in Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given, which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So there's a line there, it says, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So God has given us all things that pertain to this battle, everything that pertains to us winning it. So it's like, well, God, I'm going to need food. You've got it. Well, God, I'm going to need medical care. You've got it. Well, God, I'm also going to need ammunition. You got it. See, God has thought through the logistics, so he knows precisely what you're going to need. You need a large and continuous supply of oil, and he's thought that through. He has made that available in and through his work on the cross. He's thought this through. There's a reason why he's going to come and die. There's a reason why he's going to rise from the dead. There's a reason why he's going to go to be with the Father. Because it is better for us that he takes that seat and opens up the floodgates. He opens up Operation Pluto. And he is going to supply in and through this piping system everything we need. Now, it's hard to sometimes understand and comprehend the piping system that we have from heaven here. Jesus Christ has supplied a way, and it is like a pipe. So just imagine, Eric, as I believe in Christ, I have a pipe that is like 
stuck into my side here. It's like, whoa, whoa, how'd that get there? All right? And it goes all the way up into the heavenlies because the source or the headwaters of this uh, supply, this oil, is actually the throne room of grace. And in Ezekiel 47, you see that gusher of, of the river of life that's gushing out of the temple. Well, that true temple, the heavenly temple, is that throne room. It's the very presence of God. And so you're going to see that headwaters, that it's going to flood into this pipeline and be made available to each of us here. And so there's like a pipe, Operation Pluto. And we have been supplied everything we need for this life. Now, some of us, we have the supply, but we don't know we have the supply. And there's like a gate valve. You ever seen it? It looks like a steering wheel and it's like on that, uh, that pipeline. And ironically, some of us have it closed. I mean, I could come up to you and go, oh, you may want to open that. Uh, you see, God's given you a lot there. Everything you need for life and godliness is right there. And yet sometimes we close it just by turning to self-effort. Because the key to opening this pipeline is to recognize, I need what he has to give. And so when we become dependent and we believe, it opens. When we obey, it opens. When we do what he asks us to do, that is the signal to open the pipeline. When we do what he says not to do, that's a signal of closing it. And so as a result, when we want to live in that grace, you need to humble yourself. God gives grace to the humble. And so that flood, that pressurized grace, that, that continuous supply of oil is there, but it only is received by those that live in a humble disposition. And as a result, we are constantly receiving a supply and the ability to do. But the moment we begin to turn to self-effort, the moment we give way to pride, it begins to close off. And we become thin immediately and very vulnerable to the situation at hand. The Battle of Verdun. So February 21st, 1916 is when this is going to start. And that's what we talked about in our last uh, message. But the future of France is hanging in the balance. At the very beginning of the Battle of Verdun, it looks like a German victory. In fact, the Germans look like they could even break through the line. And it's an absolute disaster for the French. And Philip Patin, the famous general in France, is going to basically say, you know, not one inch more. In fact, this is his famous line. It's something like, they shall not pass. Okay, and you sort of find out where that comes from. That's actually what is stated by Patan in Verdun at that time, which becomes legendary in J.R.R. Tolkien's Gandalf character. Uh, and so you're going to see that same thing, that this incredible horde is coming in, and the French are going to beat all odds by staving it off. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing, but, the, but ironically, the Germans didn't intend to break through. That wasn't even their goal, and so they don't even know that they should break through. They're trying to bleed France white, and so it's sort of an, a very unique event in history that is taking place. So, let's see, La Sacri. I'm getting a lot of help, but I can't understand it at all. La, la, uva, uvu? Uva, uva. La, uva, sacri. Okay? Again, I should have just twirled my mustache on that one. I would have gotten it. They're still talking back there. Look at these guys. There's like arguments on which way is correct. Is This is the lone supply line to the front. So isn't this an incredible picture? 
this is that sacred road right here. And the supply line was constant. They could not allow any hindrance. So if there is a breakdown on the road, first thing you do is you move it off to the side of the road. You cannot slow down this. There, it had to stay consistent, otherwise there would not be enough supply. Mathematically speaking, they had to have one car pass a given point or one of these vehicles pass a given point every 14 seconds. Otherwise, we will not have enough men. We will not have enough ammunition. I mean, the whole thing was down to a science. Every 14 seconds, it had to keep going, which left very little buffer because this is just a small country road and it's the only way in. Isn't that an extraordinary uh, thing? So uh, Noria, you see it on the screen in the picture, but this is called the Noria system that Patan, Philip Patan is going to invent. I don't know if that's the best way of saying it. But that is typically in a battle, you put men into that battle and they stay there until the battle is done. And that's just, you know, of course, that's, you just went off to battle. Who fought in that battle? Well, this one division from <laughs> fought in that battle. And yet in this battle, Philip Patan is recognizing his men can't stay that long at the front of such a massive conflict that is full of so much grotesque horror. So what he's going to do is he's going to begin a rotation system. And he's going to say, okay, the people at the front actually get to then go to the back. And then they keep moving up, sort of like a rotation. But in this situation, they actually come and find reprieve all the way back in interior France, like far away from the battle. And so what's going to happen, some people say this wasn't as positive as it sounds, even though I have a hunch for these soldiers, it was a pretty nice feature that if you were at the front lines of Verdun, then you actually can go on reprieve somewhere else in France and get away from the war. But that means almost every soldier in all of the French military was on the front lines of Verdun. It was a constant cycling in and out, which you, know, you could say, boy, this stinks that we all had to go to the front of Verdun, but they all had a little stint at Verdun. But the Germans, the group that's there, the troops that are there, they're there for 10 months. Whereas the French, they're constantly rotating, but they were rotating on this road. And so there was constantly soldiers walking back, not on the road, on the, on the field next to it, and there was constantly soldiers coming, constantly. So here's Europe in 1914. You guys are getting familiar with this map. Uh, and we're gonna zoom in on France. And we're gonna show Paris, and then we're gonna show the Western Front, and then we're going to show a little road, okay? This is our road that I'm now struggling and considering not trying to pronounce the rest of the time because I can't remember how it was pronounced. Ouvois sacré? Is that good? Okay. Ouvois sacré. There it is, right there. Okay? It's, it's like this little white uh, thing there, and that's showing our supply line, okay? And there's Verdun. But here's a close-up map of it. Not a great map, I have to admit. It's not my favorite. I had two choices. One was bright yellow and one was black. You know? So it's like, okay, well, we'll take this one. Because you could read maybe the words a little better. But you're going to see right up at the top, Verdun. At the bottom, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's like Bar-le-Duc. And so that's where it's starting. But this is 45 miles, okay? And this is the one road that can get in. And so you see Verdun up there where I put a star. Now, I thought it was interesting because I don't know when they named these little towns, but my guess is that somewhere along the line they formed little towns and, they, and then they had a sense of humor and they named them. Because you have to recognize when a soldier was headed to Verdun, he had to go along this road. And so 
and everyone still in this day may be still thinking that it's romantic to go off to war, right? So I don't know if you can see at the very bottom, the first town you're going to pass through is naive. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. Uh, and then if you're going to see at the very top uh, a town called Regret, <laughs> because these battlefronts, you could smell them, I mean, what, 10, 20 miles away, maybe, I mean, I don't know how far away, but you could literally smell the stench of death in them. Because, I mean, when you have that many dead bodies in one little zone, just think about how much death was in this little territory. And it was, it was a dead zone. I mean, that's what even the last message was, was called, the, the zone rouge. Is, it's the, the red zone, which is still 100 years later, nothing can grow. So just imagine what it would be like. It looked like a gigantic forge as you're approaching it. And I, I would say the naive might be regretting <laughs> the fact that they're headed in this direction. That makes total sense. Uh, so I thought that was uh, very interesting. The incredible story of France's sacred umbilical cord. So uh, just like a baby has a connection to a mother through an umbilical cord, and that is the supply line. And so it's interesting that God has invented supply line as just a part of our life. And yet in military construct, it is es the essence of life. And so we don't, when most of us think of battle and war, we don't think of supply lines. That's not actually in our head. When we think of Christianity, we might not think of supply lines. We think of the moments, but we need to recognize that God thinks of supply lines. The name Jehovah Jireh is actually the equivalent, if we could say this, is the, of the God who thought about your supply line. He's the God who recognized you were going to have need, and he has made that need, or he has supplied for that need ahead of time. It's not that he supplies just now. It's like, oh, well, they have a need. I'll get, I'll get that supplied. He supplies ahead of time. Because that's what provision means. Think about it. Vision ahead of time. Provision. That's what provision is. It's seeing a need out front and then making the supply so that right when you need it, you have it. And that's our God. And our God has been working on Operation Pluto for us long before we recognized we were going to need oil. And yet right when we need oil, whoa, there's a pipeline and it fits right in. Oh, that's incredible. It's like it seems designed for me. He's like, yeah, I got you covered. You see, God has seen our need before we saw it. And then when we see it and we, and we request it, he's already like, got you covered. God is ahead of the curve. So here's the incredible story of Francis' sacred umbilical cord. So all supply is cut off, but for, this, but for this narrow country road. So the only way to get to Verdun is this narrow country road. One vehicle must pass every 14 seconds, or 250 vehicles must pass per hour to be able to make this supply work. Anything broken down must be immediately yanked off the road. There's some incredible spiritual truths in this. You know, if there is something in our life that is, uh, it's like a weight that is besetting us, we need to remove it, because this is a sacred supply line. Every day, 75 7,500 tons of goods must make it through. That is a lot of goods that need to make it through. Now, that covers a lot of things, ammunition to food, right? Every day, 20,000 soldiers must make it to the front. 8,000 soldiers worked that were given the job of working constantly to keep the road open and defend it. So they were constantly moving up and down the road if there was any issue on the road, whether it's a truck that breaks down, they're the ones that are like getting this th thing off. Their entire job 
was to keep this road open and clear and protected. So if the enemy tried to come in and take anything, their job is to lay down their life to preserve the supply line. Isn't that interesting? 8,000 men were given the singular job of protecting that road. That's how valuable that road was. Seven airplane fighter squadrons were positioned to defend the road. So if the Germans tried to come over and bomb the road, they had seven squadrons dedicated to just flying over and keeping this space covered. So as they're going along, you know, and I'm not an expert on road or pavement or things like this, but this is before the normal kinds of pavement. This is like uh, gravel types of roads. And so the roads are wearing constantly with that much use. So they had to bring in 700,000 tons of stone throughout those 10 months to constantly be repairing the road. So they, they created a great method of doing that, and that is all their German POWs, they made them dig up rock and move rock and, and supply it. So, which I thought was brilliant in the spiritual side too. That actually, even that supply line that God is creating, he uses what the enemy intended to harm us as a construction help for us to keep our supply line open. The sacred road. You know, uh, they actually called it back then the road to Calvary. Uh, Calvary, it's not, those two words, cavalry and Calvary, uh, especially when you're talking about war, uh, can be dangerously close. But they called it the road to Calvary. In other words, it's, it's, it's you're going to your death. And so when you were headed off to Verdun, you were counting the cost and you recognized uh, that you probably weren't coming back. It was also the narrow way. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you just think about this incredible road and, and the significance of it, and I've been likening it to the supply line of, of grace in our life, or oil in our life, and yet even in history, it was seen as this sacred road to the, by the French. They understood what this meant. They, met, they understood that when they agreed with their general to go in this direction, that they likely weren't coming back. And what's interesting is it was the road to death, and it was that same road to death was a road to life. Think about what is coming out of this. It's the security of Verdun. Verdun is going to survive this because these men are going to lay down their life. And so when you think like a soldier, it's hard because you have to be willing to lay down your life so that others can live. And that's the principle of a soldier's life and a soldier's dedication. And so this same road that is a road to your death is actually a road to life. And uh, that, that mixture in this sacred road is really interesting because everyone in history could look at that road and say, that's what supplied, that's what supplied France its victory. Yeah, but it also supplied this soldier his death. Isn't that interesting? That, that which supplied this soldier his death is what supplied France life. And yet that's the gospel wrapped up into one single road right there. John 14, 6. Now I changed out a word in this, and it's the word way, and uh, just so you can see this. Jesus said to him, I am, uh-oh, now I have to pronounce my French again, sacri, is that right? Okay. Uh, I am la ouvois sacri. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the sacred road. I am the way to get to the front. I am the way to get to the Father. There's only one way, and it's me. You see, Jesus is the supply line. He is the one that we must believe in. We must head down that way. Galatians 2.20. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to look at this scripture with new eyes. Okay, you need to recognize that as you are coming to Christ, and as you are heading down that narrow way, you are choosing a road to Calvary. You are choosing to give up your life. And in so doing, ironically, you are gaining life. It's the same principle of a soldier. You are giving up life so that you could gain life. And there, there was a quote, and I, I can't get it exact, but it was Richard Wormbrand, uh, and he was a pastor in Romania and suffered for many years in Romanian prisons under the communist rule. And he made a statement that, and I, I've never been able to verify this, I haven't tried to verify this, but he said something like, out of all the languages of the earth, there's only one language that capitalizes I, and that's the English language. And in other words, uh, he was making sort of a statement that we have a tendency to capitalize I. Uh, and I, I don't have a good solution for that because if you try and uncapitalize I, you're, even your, you know, your text uh, software will immediately capitalize it again. It's saying, no, an I that stands alone capitalizes. And it's not very easy to uncapitalize I, as I'll show you in the next uh, screen. It's like everything in our system demands it. And if you don't capitalize I, everyone's going to think you have you know, poor grammar. Uh, and they're going to say something's wrong with you. It's, it's not the easiest thing to fix. But it is an interesting statement that God didn't intend us to be a capitalized I. He intended us to be lowercase. You see, I is a real character. It's us. And God's not looking to dispose of us and so when we die to ourselves, or when we deny ourselves, basically what we're doing is we're going from a capital to a lowercase. We're not being kicked out of the sentence. We're just being lowered. And that's the key. And I think some of us struggle with like self. Is self just bad? No, self is you. However, self was never meant to sit in that seat, that throne. It was never meant to be in control. So self must be uncapitalized. And it must be lowercase. And when it is lowercase and Jesus is capitalized in our life, then suddenly our life begins to function. And so when you go down the sacred road and you follow Jesus, you are saying goodbye to the capital version of I. And yet you still live, it's just a different form of living. Now you're living according to a pipeline supplying you oil. You're still there, you're a lowercase I. But now you have a capital C Christ that is ruling in your life. Your life is now Christ instead of you. So I want us to look at Galatians 2.20 in light of that. And I'm going to uh, do something, well, let's see how it translates. So I made the I, which is the capital I, I made it big and capital so you could see it. And that is I, or capital I, have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, or capital I, who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which lowercase I now lives in the flesh, lowercase I lives by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is the sacred road.
when we head out on this sacred road, we say adios to capital I. But that doesn't mean we disappear. God is now the supply of our life. And he says, I've got you covered. You move in this direction, and I'm going to take care of lowercase i. And that's our job, is to not recapitalize ourselves. Recapitalizing ourselves doesn't help the system. It cuts off the supply. The secret to the supply in our life is to remain lowercase. And if we are lowercase, then we get his uppercase help. Hudson Taylor calls it the exchange life. He gets you, and you get all that he is. And that you should be uncapitalized. I don't like how that you is capitalized right there. It really defeats my argument that I'm trying to make. I, I, we, we lowercase I, and then we capitalize the Y and you. No, no, no. Okay, so sorry about that, guys. He gets you, and then you, uncapitalized. You get all that he is. And this is an exchange. It's like, could I have your capital I self? Yes. Follow me down the narrow way. You know what narrow means in that uh, understanding? That's a way of difficulty and compression. There's a broad way. It's very attractive to us, but the narrow way is a way of difficulty and compression. It's the sacred road. It's the holy highway. It's Jesus. Come, follow me. And when we do, we give up our capital I state in exchange for his capital C, Christ, help. His capital G, grace, assistance. He gives us everything we need. Our job is to trust him. The supply line of the Holy Spirit, introducing Jehovah Jireh. So Jehovah Jireh, now many of you have grown up and you know the, the, the phrase Jehovah Jireh. It's you know, from ex, or, I'm sorry, Genesis 22 where Abraham is going up to Mount Moriah with his son. And it's an incredible passage to study because there's so many first mentions. Uh, like I think love is first mentioned in that, worship is first mentioned in that. I mean, it's fascinating how many first mentions are in this which are going to be critical for understanding the sacrifice of Christ at the cross and even our life before him. But Jesus is going to be truly the, the, the ram caught in the thicket that is going to be given in place of Isaac. I mean, we see that. And it's, it's a remarkable thing, but it's said that on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And the name Jehovah Jireh, the I am that provides, is going to be given right there. And you need to recognize that as you move forward in faith, the I am didn't just provide back then. And that's part of the name I am means it he will always be the same. He was this, he is this, and always will be this. What? Your provider. He was the supply of oil. He is your supply of oil. And he always will be your supply of oil. Large and continuous amounts exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ask or think, he will give you what you need for this battle. You have been assigned a task that at times will seem so much bigger than your ability. And you might as well just agree with that assessment up front. It is bigger than your ability, but it's not bigger than his supply. He will give you everything you need to win. And that is our trust that if you dig in your own pockets or you look in your own bank account, sometimes you're like, God, I don't have enough. And that's an incorrect assessment of your life because you're evaluating things based on natural world 
understanding instead of spiritual understanding. When you uncapitalize the I, you transfer it into a spiritual domain, which means the spiritual actually holds a trump card over every one of your natural challenges. So even if your bank account is low, which I have a hunch because Ellerslie students love to have low bank accounts, if your bank account is low, I want you to recognize his is not. And if you feel thin in your physical strength, I want you to know that he is not low in his strength. Your job is to be a believer. And as you walk down this narrow way and you start to hear the artillery shells going off and maybe have the smell <clears throat> that is very unpleasant up ahead and you have a sense that this is going to be a challenge, your God is always behind you like a shepherd. In his rod and his staff, they comfort you. You're just a little sheep on a narrow way. And you know what that little tap of the shepherd even means to the fluffy backside of a sheep? It means, no, stay to the middle. No, stay to the middle. Keep going this way. But there's bomb blasts up ahead. Keep going this way. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He is a very present help in trouble. And his supply line will never be cut off. He will always be there for you. He will always give you what you need. And that is our assurance. So I thought this was sort of a fun scripture to finish with. Jeremiah 6.16. It's always been one of my favorite scriptures. And if you ask me why, I'm not sure why it is. But there's something about it that makes me feel warm. And I'll read it for you. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. No one's really expecting that headed towards Verdun is rest for your soul. Uh, you know, you start out at naive and then you end up at regret. That doesn't sound like the right direction to be going. That's natural man thinking. You see, the world will look at us and go, you're going to regret this. You're going to eventually end up in regret. No, I'm going to end up exactly where God is leading me to go. And I trust him. When I go on this narrow way, I trust the outcome. And as a result, we believe this. Stand in the way and see. And ask for the sacred road. Lord, I, I want your one way there. And everyone in the world can say, that goes to Verdun. Are you crazy? Because, you know, in historic Christianity, they could say, that leads to martyrdom. That leads to imprisonment. That leads to, like, uh, your popularity rating dipping. Are you sure you want to go in that direction? You must be very naive. You'll regret this. Yeah. That's the path right there. It's the only way to get to that destination. Because that's the way of life right there. I know it doesn't translate to the world to uncapitalize the I and to let Jesus Christ come in. However, to a believer, it makes total sense. I want the supply. I know he's going to give me everything I need for this challenge. Watch what my God will do. Where the good way is and walk in it, then you will find rest for your souls. What a strange place to find rest. Yep. Look at the cross and say, right there. That's where I'll find rest, in his sacrifice, in his working. It doesn't look that attractive on the outside. Jesus is dying. He's suffering. He's in agony. He's being mocked and ridiculed. And yet that, 
believing in that work is where we find rest. The sacred road headed straight towards the bomb blast. He says, come follow me. Yes, Lord. And we find rest for our souls. Father, your ways are perfect. And even though our natural mind has a tendency to refute and a tendency to want to argue, Lord, we submit and we say we are believers that you know the best way. And so, Lord Jesus, we want to head down the sacred road, the holy highway today, trusting you and allowing our capital I life to be lowercased so that you can truly be our supply. Lord, we want to live with a continuous and large supply of your Holy Spirit. Lord, because without you, we can do nothing. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would prove to our souls even today that this is the way of life. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.